Let's open God's Word this evening to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we will read verses 36 through 49, and the whole of that will be, the 36 through 50 rather, and the whole of that will be the text for tonight's sermon. It's worth noting at least though, verses 16 and 17 of that chapter. This is just after Jesus had raised a young man from the dead. We read in Luke 7 verse 16, And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen among us, and that God hath visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. Now let's go to verse 36. The whole of this will be the text for tonight's sermon. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner when she knew that Jesus sat at me in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors, the one owed five hundred pence and the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thy house, thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with tears, and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace.
as a congregation, we are to examine ourselves in this upcoming week with a view to partaking of the Lord's Supper. That is what the form, on the basis of sacred Scripture, teaches us that we are to examine ourselves, particularly with regard to our sins, our faith, and our intentions. And the heart of that self-examination consists of analyzing our lives in the light of God's Word. That is, we are to take our lives and set them side by side, what God's Word sets before us with regards to how we are to live, to be reminded of our sins and thus our need for Jesus Christ. And it's important that we truly examine ourselves. That we spend some time doing this. That we are deliberate, that we are intentional in this important practice that has been handed down to us as a part of our Reformed heritage. But now that raises a question, why? Why do I need to examine myself, especially because I already know the outcome? Why would I need to take some time looking at my life in the light of God's Word if I already know what I'm going to find? I already know I'm a sinner. And really, it doesn't matter how much time I spend examining myself, the conclusion is going to be the same. So, why do we have this this practice that we do? Why do we need to go through this again and again? That very question was asked to me recently after preaching a preparatory sermon in my own congregation. And it was a genuine, honest question. And I thought it was worth giving an answer to the whole congregation. And now, I give that same answer to you in this sermon. Because there's no better answer, arguably no better answer in all of Scripture, to that question than this particular passage. Which teaches us that the outpouring of our love flows from and is the result of knowing the greatness of our debt that has been been forgiven for Jesus' sake. That was the lesson that Simon Peter had, not Simon Peter, just Simon, the Pharisee, had to learn. And that's the lesson we must learn this night as well. So we consider this evening Luke 7 verses 36 through 15 using as our theme a debtor's love for Jesus. First we'll look at the two loves, then the two debts, really two debtors, and then the one Savior. A debtor's love for Jesus. Two different loves, two different debtors, and one Savior. The text that we are considering for tonight's sermon begins in verse 36. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he, Jesus, went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. Imagine yourself sitting as a guest at that table. You are in the home of a man by the name of Simon the Pharisee, who is not to be confused with Simon Peter or really any other Simon 
in the New Testament Scriptures. This is the only time this Simon appears. And you, along with every other guest, are gathered around a table. Only you are not sitting at this table on a chair with your feet beneath you, but instead you are reclined upon a flat couch. You would have one arm supporting you so that the other arm is free for eating food, and your legs stretched out behind you at an angle to the table. Now among the guests at this table, there is one especially noteworthy guest. Jesus of Nazareth. That man that everybody is all of a sudden talking about. Rumor has it that he has even raised a man from the dead so that everyone is saying that a great prophet is now risen among us. And now Simon has invited this Jesus into his home to see for himself, to find out about this Jesus. Is he really a prophet? And he has invited you to join him. Imagine yourself sitting at that table. What happens next would have been quite a surprise. Because we read that a woman entered into this room. It's verse 37. And behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at me in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. In comes a woman. And now, to be clear, for someone off the streets to enter into such a feast or banquet, that by itself would not have been much of a surprise because that was actually allowed. That was common practice. If you were holding a great banquet, Others were allowed to come in to sort of stand along the free and even mingle with some of the guests. But but what was surprising was for this particular woman to enter. Because Scripture tells us that this woman was in the city a sinner. That is, she was known in the city as a great sinner. This woman was the town pariah. She was the outcast on account of her bad reputation. And thus for her to enter into the home of a strict Pharisee, that would have raised some eyebrows. People would have been murmuring under their breath, what does she think she is doing here? But though her presence alone would have raised some eyebrows, it's what she actually did that no doubt made everyone stop and stare. Because upon entering into this dining hall, she goes immediately and stands at the foot, the feet of Jesus of Nazareth. She's weeping. She is crying uncontrollably. And in her hands, there is a semi-transparent white flask. In the King James Version, we read alabaster box. Really, the box is a flask. It would have been a flask holding some sort of liquid inside of it, some sort of precious liquid, a perfume or an ointment. And if you were sitting as a guest at that table, it would have been 
quite apparent what this woman intends to do. She intends to take the contents of this flask and apply them to this Jesus of Nazareth. And as guests at that table, no doubt you would have been wondering, what is he going to do? Is he going to allow this or is he going to send her away? And almost certainly that question was on her heart and mind too. Scripture does not tell us Jesus' reaction. Did he give her a nod? A go-ahead, a green light? Or was it simply that he did not restrain her in any way? He did not in any way send a message that she ought not proceed? that's all it was, it was enough for this woman to then get down on her hands and knees with a view to anointing the feet of her Savior. Only as she gets down on her hands and knees, she notices his feet are still dirty. They were not washed when he entered into the room. And she's not about to anoint dirty feet. And remember, she's crying this whole time. And so... Having kneeled down, she likely uses her hands to gather the moisture off her face and begins to apply it to the feet of Jesus Christ. She's washing His feet with her tears. Even as, no doubt, the tears continued to flow, perhaps some of them falling like raindrops directly onto His feet. And when she's done, she lets down her hair and uses her hair to wipe away the dirt and the moisture. And then she proceeds to start kissing his feet. Not once, not twice, again and again. And then she can finally do what she came to do in the first place. She takes that flask, which would have had a a very long, narrow neck, break open the flask, and immediately everyone in the room would have smelled a pleasing aroma. This was a perfume, a costly perfume that she then applied to the feet of Jesus Christ. And she did all of this out of love for Him. Because that's what we have here, congregation. An act of love for Jesus Christ. And that's not just my evaluation of this. That's Christ's own evaluation of what this woman does. And that's evident from verse 47. Wherefore I say unto thee, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. She was showing her love. And now, why did she love Him in the first place? Well, almost certainly, this woman had come to love Him by hearing Him preach. Remember, that's Christ's main work that He performed during His earthly ministry. He came to preach. And that's what he was doing in the immediate context. He was out there preaching. And almost certainly this woman was among that crowd of 
fair of crowd of sinners and publicans who heard him preaching, and by God's grace, she believed. She recognized that this Jesus was the only one who could deliver her, who could save her from her great and many sins. And now with gratitude in her heart, she goes out either to acquire this costly perfume or to retrieve it from her house and to bring it to Jesus as a sort of thank offering for His saving work on her behalf. She finds out He's gone into the home of Simon the Pharisee and having learned that, she then enters into that home to perform this act of love. And what a beautiful love this is. For you see, this is a courageous love. And we say that because she had to enter into the home of a strict Pharisee. In spite of her reputation, did she hesitate at the door? Maybe. But if she did, love compelled her to enter. This was a courageous love. She was willing to expose herself to the sneers and to the judgmentalism that she would receive upon entering into such a home. What is more, this is a genuine love. And that comes out from the tears. These are tears of repentance flowing down her cheeks. She was sorry for her great sin. But more than that, she recognized that in this Jesus of Nazareth, there was mercy to be found. And the thought, the knowledge that He would be merciful to her is what made the tears truly flow. This was a genuine love for Jesus Christ. And it was a humble love. For she anoints His feet. She does not presume to anoint His head. But instead she goes to His feet. And what is more, she uses the hair on her head to wipe away the liquid and the dirt from His feet. The hair of a woman is her crown, her glory. And she takes that and puts it at the very feet of Jesus Christ, showing this is a humble love for her Savior. It's also an affectionate love. And that comes out from the kisses. I love the way that the Spirit led Luke to put it. Really, that Jesus, the way Jesus Himself put it when we read in Verse 45, this woman since the time I came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet. She planted not just one, but many fervent kisses upon His feet. This was an affectionate love. And what is more, it was a costly love. Because of what she used to anoint His feet. In the King James we read of her using ointment and that's a, a good translation, but really it could be strengthened. This is a costly perfume that she's using. This is an extravagant love. This is costly love. And it's in light of all of these aspects of her love that we can readily see why Jesus Himself evaluates the actions of this woman by saying, she loved much. This is a beautiful, beautiful passage of Scripture in that it's this beautiful expression of love.
And the question for us is, can the same be said of us? Do we love much? Is this your love for Jesus? Is it mine? Would we be willing to do and perform such an act of love if given the opportunity? Could our love ever be described as courageous, genuine, as humble, affectionate, and costly? Or is our love like the other main figure in this passage? The love, really the lack of love, of Simon the Pharisee, about whom we read that he loved little, which is a kind way of saying that he did not love at all. Because you see, there are two different loves here in this passage. There's the love of this sinful woman, but then there's the lack of love on the part of Simon the Pharisee. And Christ Himself points this out in verses 44 through 46. First of all, verse 44, we read this, And He turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thy house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears, and wipe them with the hairs of her head. Simon, when I entered into your home, you did not send a servant to wash my feet. You did not so much as provide a basin of water and a towel for me to wash my own feet. And no, understand, this was for Simon to treat Jesus in this way was for him to slight Jesus. Because this is hospitality 101 if you're living in dry and dusty Palestine, a guest comes to your home and you see to it that their feet are washed. But Simon did not do that. And in stark contrast, this woman used the tears from her face and her hair on her head to wash Jesus' feet. There's a contrast. And that contrast continues in verse 45. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. And understand, a kiss here would have been the, a common greeting in that day. This would be like shaking someone's hand heartily when you're greeting a close friend or greeting a notable guest. And Simon did not bother to greet Jesus in this way. And what a contrast to this woman who did not cease to kiss Jesus' feet, who covered His feet with kisses. But then that contrast extends also into verse 46 where we read, My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Again, this was another part of common courtesy and basic hospitality, especially if you're bringing in a noteworthy guest. You give them oil to anoint their head. And what Jesus is saying is, Simon, you did not even provide me an inexpensive olive oil to do this. There's a contrast in the two words there in verse 46. My head with 
oil thou didst not anoint. And then the woman used ointment, which we said is costly perfume. And Simon did not anoint his head, whereas she was willing to anoint his feet. And Jesus Christ points all of this out. And what he's doing is exposing the, the shabby treatment of his host who failed to show common courtesy, who missed even the basics of hospitality in that day. And what all of this shows is his lack of love. He did not invite Jesus into his home because he loved him. It was not because he had a a high regard for this Jesus of Nazareth. But at best, he invited him simply out of curiosity. Everyone's talking about him like he's a great prophet. I want to see this for myself. That's at best. More likely, he invited him with a heart that was full of a deep skepticism. A doubt that this man could really be a great prophet. So that very likely, he is looking for evidence to the contrary. And it's in harmony with that that we read what we do in verse 39. Verse 39, Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. As we mentioned, if you were a guest sitting at this table, when this woman comes in and performs this act, no doubt everyone was stopping and staring. And eventually people started murmuring among themselves, questioning what's going on. And here we're given an insight into what Simon himself was thinking. His thought was that this man cannot be a prophet. For if he was, he would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. Simon clearly disapproves. Disapproves of what this woman is doing, but even more so, Simon disapproves of the fact that Jesus allowed for this. Because his thought is, either he does not know that this woman is such a great sinner, and if that's the case, he should know it, and therefore he's not a prophet, or if he does know that she's such a sinner, well, for him to then allow her to perform this act of love would be totally out of harmony with the the morality that a true prophet should have. So we see that there's a lack of love in Simon's heart. But now while he is thinking that, Jesus Himself speaks up. And Jesus Himself speaks directly to Simon and points out not only the sharp contrast in these two loves, but he also gives an explanation. And he explains that what stands behind these two love is that we have two different debtors. So having considered the two loves, we need to see that there are two debtors here. And Jesus teaches that By giving a parable, as we read in verses 40 and following. Verse 40, And Jesus 
answering, said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed five hundred pence and the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. This parable is so simple, it requires almost no explanation. It speaks of two men, debtors, who took out money from a a creditor, a, a money lender. The one owed 500 pence, pence being 500 denarii. A denarius being what the ordinary man could expect to earn in one day. So one owes 500 days worth of work. The other owes only 50 pence or 50 denarii. So what the difference between the two is the amount of debt that they owe. What they both have in common is that neither of them is able to pay off this debt. Verse 42, and when they had nothing to pay, so they're both stuck as it were. But then this creditor, this moneylender, frankly forgave, that is, without any cost to them, he remitted, he canceled their debt. And then having told the parable, Jesus puts a piercing question to Simon. Verse 42, tell me therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon, which of these two debtors is going to have more reason to be thankful? Which is going to show their love more fully to this gracious creditor, this gracious moneylender? Simon answers that question as casually as he possibly can. For he says in verse 43, Simon answered and said, I suppose that... He to whom he forgave most. And Jesus immediately affirms that's the right answer. The end of verse 43, And he said unto him, Jesus said unto Simon, Thou hast rightly judged. Exactly, Simon. Because you see, there's a connection between knowing the greatness of a debt that's been forgiven and the corresponding love that flows from that knowledge. And then Jesus Christ proceeds to apply this parable directly and explicitly to Simon and this woman. So that verses 44-46, through which we've already gone through, are Jesus taking this parable and bringing it to bear. We'll reread them so that Right after this conversation, we read Jesus saying, And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thy house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. So that what Jesus is doing here is pointing out this sharp contrast of the two different loves. And then from there, he works backwards 
to show that there are two different debtors here. And that's verse 47. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. You see, in the parable, Jesus started with the two debts and the forgiveness of the debt and then moved from the debt to the, the love that flows from that. But now here, when, he comes to a, when it comes time to applying that parable, He starts with what's on the surface. He starts with, with what everyone in the room could see. This woman's love and Simon's lack of love. And it's painstakingly obvious. And then from there, he works backwards. And says, Simon, this woman's sins are forgiven because she loved much. That is, this woman knows her sin. She's sorry for it. She's painfully, she's acutely aware of it and it grieves her, Simon. But she also knows they're forgiven. She's enjoying that good news of the gospel and that comes out in the specific way that he words it. In verse 47, Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven and Literally, it's they have been forgiven and she's still basking in the the good news that they're forgiven. And it's because she knows her sins are forgiven that she is now showing love in this beautiful way. Simon, do you see it? And do we see it? Do we understand what Jesus is saying here? To help us understand, it's important to make a couple of points clear. It begins by making clear what we mean by what the point Jesus is making regarding these two different debts. We must understand that he has in view the conscious awareness of one's own sin. In the parable, there are these two different debtors. The one owes 500 pence, the other owes 50. But the point of that is not that in the eyes of God Himself, that if He were to look upon Simon and this woman, that God Himself viewed Simon's debt as a 50 pence debt and this woman's debt as a 500 pence debt. That's not the point. But instead, the contrast is that this woman knows she's a sinner. She understands she has a great debt. She's sorry for her sin so that the debt here is a conscious awareness of one's sin before the face of God. In contrast, Simon thought his debt was little. He thought he had hardly any need for the forgiveness of sins. What Jesus is doing is thus exposing his pharisaical self-righteousness, his pride. So the debt here is a conscious awareness of one's sin. And that then helps us to understand the point about forgiveness. Because Jesus makes a statement in verse 47. He says, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And now the point is not that there are different degrees of forgiveness. That you can have much forgiveness or you can have little forgiveness. Because the reality is you are either forgiven or you are not forgiven. So the point is not degrees of forgiveness, but that this woman 
truly is forgiven and that she has the assurance of faith that her sins have been forgiven. As we pointed out when Jesus says her sins are forgiven, the idea is they have already been forgiven in the past. And now she's still enjoying the conscious awareness of that. They were forgiven when she believed in Jesus Christ as she sat under the preaching. And now knowing the forgiveness of sins, she then shows her love. And that really explains the part of verse 47 that has been controversial at times in the history of the church. In verse 47, Jesus says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for, because, she loved much. And now there are some who look at that statement, her sins are forgiven for she loved much, and would argue, well, that must be mean that our love for God is a part of the reason that God forgives us. That is, we are justified by a faith that is formed by love. That is, not just faith, but faith and faithfulness. Faith with the the fruits of faith. That's how some wrongly understand this passage. But that's not at all the point. Jesus is not saying that her love for Him is a part of the basis, the ground, the reason for the forgiveness of her sins. But the point is that her love is the visible evidence that her sins have been forgiven. And that's clear from the passage. It's clear from what we've noted a couple times now. This verb. Her sins have been forgiven. Already before this expression of love took place. She walked into that room as one who already knew the forgiveness of sins. And what is more, it's obvious from the parable. Because in the parable, Jesus starts with the the forgiving of the debt, the, the remitting of the sins, and then goes from there to the love. And the only reason that He reverses the order when he comes to applying it, is because he's starting with what's on the surface, with what everyone could see. But the parable teaches us that that love is an expression of knowing one's sins have been forgiven. And thus when Jesus says here what he does, her sins are forgiven for she loved much. That's like one of us saying, After a good rain, it rained outside for, because, it's wet on the ground. If any one of of us would say that to another, no one would think that the wetness on the ground is the cause of the rain. It's just the opposite. The, The rain caused the wetness, and the wetness is the visible evidence. It's the proof that it just rained outside. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven because for she loved much. He's not saying her love is the basis, the ground, the reason for the forgiveness of sins. But they're the evidence, they're the the proof, they're the demonstration that her sins really have been forgiven. And she's now expressing her love out of gratitude. 
So that the overall point then is that our love for our Savior and the outpouring of that love flows from and is the result of knowing the greatness of our debt that's been forgiven. And does that not underscore then the importance of knowing our sin and knowing the greatness of our debt? For you see, it's only when we understand that we are sinners that we then seek salvation in Jesus Christ. And it's only when we know that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ and that I've been forgiven a great debt that we are ever going to love Him out of gratitude for that forgiveness. And implied in that then is that if our love has waned, if our love is not what it should be, very likely it's because we've begun to minimize how bad it was and how bad it is from a spiritual point of view. We've begun to minimize the greatness of our debt. So that in our hearts and in our minds, our debt is not the 500 pence debt, but it's the 50 Pence day. It's really not all that bad, is it? And that happens especially when we compare ourselves to each other. That was Simon's problem, wasn't it? He was not comparing himself to God's law. He was comparing himself to this woman and saying, I am a more righteous man than that woman who's a notable sinner in the city. And we do the exact same thing. Yes, I've sinned, but I haven't done what that person did. And I, I sure am not as bad as so-and-so over there. And we start to minimize our sin. And all of this underscores then the importance of God's law and the knowledge of our sins. This is why the Heidelberg Catechism starts where it does. With those three Lord's Days on our sin and our misery, underscoring the greatness of our debt. And at the outset of that short section in the Catechism, we have the question that asks, Whence knowest thou thy misery? And the answer is, Out of the law of God. That is, it's the law that exposes our sin, that shows us how bad it is. Because when we go to stand before the law, every comparison falls away. There's one comparison. How do I measure up to God's standard? And when we go and stand before that standard and we're honest with ourselves, the conclusion is, I am a sinner. I am the chief of sinners. And my debt is not the 500 pence debt. It's a 10,000 talent debt. It's far greater. It's something I could never give back to God. But you see, that's what drives us to Christ. It's that knowledge of my sin. That reminds me I need a Savior. 
And I need the forgiveness of sins from this one. And it's when we then bring our sins to Him. And we hear Him say again to us, I forgive you that we then want to love Him. Even as this woman loved Him. And that then shows us why we have the practice of examining ourselves with a view to partaking of the Lord's Supper. We go all the way back to the introduction. Why do we have this practice? Why do I need to go through this process if I already know the outcome? I already know the result is I'm a sinner. Well, because of this connection that we've just shown between knowing the greatness of my debt that's been forgiven and the corresponding expressions of love. That's what this passage teaches us. And now, to be clear, in Luke 7, we're dealing with absolutes. There's one who is not forgiven at all, and there's one who is forgiven. And thus, there's one who does not love, at least not at this time. And there's one who does love. It's black and white in Luke 7. But yet there's a principle that applies to all of us. That when I start to minimize the greatness of my debt, that's going to have an impact on my love for my Savior. And that's part of the reason we examine ourselves. And it's important that we are deliberate, we're intentional about this process. Now what do we mean by that? It's important that we take some time this week to examine ourselves. And different methods would include, for example, going through each of the Ten Commandments. Say, Monday through Friday, you take two of the commandments, and each day you read the corresponding explanation of the Heidelberg Catechism. And you pray over that explanation that God would use those two commandments, the first and second on Monday, to help you see your sin, and then by Friday, you've gone through all ten. Or, you could, we could examine ourselves by analyzing each sphere of our lives. So that, on one day, we look at what God's Word teaches us about our relationship with our God, and the next day, we look at what God's Word teaches us as Husbands, and then the next day as fathers, and then the next day with regard to our vocation, whether it's a pastor or an employee or an employer. And take my life and measure it relative to God's standard to see how far short I fall. And now the purpose in all this is not so that by the end of the week we're wallowing in our sin and misery, nor is the purpose, well, I got to do better. I got to fix all this if I'm ever going to come to the table of the Lord. That's not the point. A week of self examination is not a week to be on our best behavior so that we ourselves are worthy to come. But the point is to see that I am so unworthy. I have no right of myself to sit down at that table. The point is to drive us to our knees in prayer and say, Father, I am the chief of sinners. Forgive me. Forgive all my sins for Jesus' sake. And then to come 
rejoicing that there is forgiveness. And with our hearts filled with love for our God. And with a desire to then show our love to this one and glorious Savior. Because there is but one Savior. There were two loves. There were two debtors. There's one Savior. And He's the only one in whom there is the forgiveness of sins. And that was the good news of the Gospel communicated to this woman. Verse 47, Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are, have been, forgiven. And he uses a word that refers to our sins being taken away, removed from us. It reminds us of the scapegoat in the Old Testament that was sent out into the wilderness bearing symbolically the sins of the people never to be seen again. It was not just one of her sins, not just a few of her sins, but all of them. Because Jesus says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. That is all of those many sins. Every wrong she's ever done, they're all gone. And He makes sure, He makes sure to assure her of this too. And that comes out what, from what? follows. Because you see, verse 47 really would have been enough. He says, in the presence of this woman, her sins, speaking third person, are forgiven. But he does not leave it there. He brings this word directly to her in verse 48. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. He changes whom he's looking at. And he changes the pronoun that he uses so that this word is communicated directly to her. And then he goes on to speak of the, the blessed peace she now has on account of that verse 50. And he said to the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. Go in peace because you've been reconciled with God. You now have peace with God and thus you can have peace within your own heart. That was the message of Jesus to this woman. And that's His message to us. Through the preaching of the Gospel, there's a declaration to the child of God who hears it by faith. Thy sins. They are forgiven. But now He does not leave it there. To proclaim it in a generic way to the whole congregation because next week Sunday morning, He'll make it personal. As the elements of the Lord's Supper are passed out, they're put in your hand, child of God. And you're able to touch that bread and to taste that wine. And by faith, hear Him say to you personally, directly, as though He's staring you in the eye, Thy sins are forgiven. And he's able to say that on the basis of his own saving work. See, those who stood really reclined at this table, they called unto question whether he had the ability to do this. 
That's verse 49. And they that sat at meat with Him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? They understood what Jesus was doing. He was, he was uttering a word of absolution of forgiveness. He was exercising a divine prerogative, something that only God Himself could do. They understood that, and they questioned it. But now though they questioned it in unbelief, it's an important question to answer. How is it that this Jesus could forgive her sins and forgive our sins? And that's a good question because you see, our God is a just God. And He's not just going to simply cancel a debt. Once there's been a sin committed, there must be justice. There must be a payment. So how is it that Jesus Christ can forgive us? On the basis of His own saving work. And the fact that He took our sins upon Himself and paid the debt for them. Think about that in light of what we've read here and what this woman has done. This woman took the dirt of Jesus' feet upon her hair. And she did that because she knew that Jesus did something far more wonderful. And that He took not the dirt, but the sins of her mouth, of her hands, of her mind, and of her heart. And took them upon His shoulders. And He carried them all the way to Calvary. To die on the cross for them. To pay the debt that she owed. The debt that we owe on account of those sins. To make the perfect satisfaction of God's justice. He paid the debt. And thus a reminder to us that the forgiveness of sins is very costly. In the parable, we read that this creditor frankly forgave them both. That is, he freely forgave them both. He forgave them without any sort of cost. And praise be to God, that's true for us. God forgives us frankly. He forgives us freely. He forgives us without any cost on our part. But beloved, there was still a cost that had to be paid. And it cost nothing less than the blood of Jesus Christ. The life of the only begotten Son of God. So that the remitting of sins, the canceling of our debts was the most costly price ever paid in all the universe. And it's knowing that that we then see that this one Savior is therefore worthy of our love. Perhaps we thought when we read this passage that this woman, this is a little much, you know. That this is kind of going over the top. What she's doing here. But now we see it's impossible to go over the top 
in our love for Jesus Christ. There's no love too affectionate. There's no love too extravagant. There's no love that's too costly. It's impossible for us ever to express fully and completely the love that we ought to have for this Savior. So knowing the greatness of our debt that's been forgiven, let us now love much. Let us love Him with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Let us love Him every day, of every, every hour of every day, serving Him out of love for this one Savior. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, what a beautiful passage Thou hast given to us in Thy Word. And we pray that Thou will apply this Word unto our hearts and that Thou will be with us in this week of self-examination. Lead us by Thy Word and Spirit to see the greatness of the debt that we owe. And we pray that Thou wilt then direct our faith to Jesus Christ, the One in whom alone there is the forgiveness of sins. And knowing the forgiveness, we pray that Thou wilt fill our hearts with love for Thee and love for our Savior. Hear this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.